Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. Writer Steve Martini is out with his latest legal thriller. It's called Blood Flag, and it's rooted in the history of Nazi Germany. I recently talked with Martini about his latest Paul Madriani adventure. The story is grounded in history, actually. It's, um, it involves the death of, a, of a, uh, an elderly man who is a World War II veteran. Um, and uh, like many of the veterans of that era, uh, they're all... Their lives are coming to an end by the thousands. Uh, and, uh, but this is believed to be a mercy killing by his daughter, and she's charged with a homicide. And Paul Madriani, who is my protagonist, my, my uh, defense lawyer in these cases, uh, takes the case. And um, soon after he does, he realizes there's more to what's going on here than meets the eye. Because not only has uh, this man died, but several of his comrades from World War II have also died under similar circumstances, which raises a suspicion. Um, and the, uh, the blood flag actually is a, uh, uh, an icon of history that disappeared after the war, after the Second World War. It was the flag that was designed by Hitler in the early 1920s after the First World War when he was wandering around as a soldier and vagabond, basically. He was sent out by Army intelligence to spy on a group of insurgents a uh, small group that he ultimately turned into the Nazi party over a period of years. But in the early going, he designed a flag with a swastika on it, and he attempted to seize power in the city of Munich um, by force. And there was what was called the Beer Hall Putsch, which the Munich police opened fire on Hitler and his entourage. They killed several of them, 13, I think. And uh, one of the gentlemen who was killed uh, fell upon the flag and bled out. And hence the name, the blood flag, uh, was ascribed to the flag. And it was lost to history after the war. The Nazis used that flag to consecrate other flags uh, in a spiritual uh, ceremony of sorts. Um, and uh, Hitler would uh, touch the flag to the, to the flag of SS units and other, other military groups uh, in order to consecrate them. And, uh, but the flag itself was believed to have been destroyed in a bombing raid in Munich in 1945 when the Allies bombed the city. Uh, the city was later occupied by American forces, um, of one of which uh, was the, uh, the uh, victim in this case who died uh, under somewhat mysterious circumstances as an elderly man. And, uh, but all of a sudden, threads of the flag start coming into the, into the story surrounding the death. And uh, Paul finds himself basically trying to fly, find the origins of the flag, where it is, if it still exists. Uh, it's believed uh, it was either destroyed in the bombing raid or it might have been picked up as a war relic by uh, American soldiers who occupied Munich after the war and brought back to the United States because they didn't know what it was. It was simply another Nazi flag, and someone might have it in their attic. But uh, the flag itself, because of its iconic history, uh, would have tremendous monetary value and probably symbolic value to some groups who might want to use it for terror purposes. So therein lies the seeds of the story. And uh, so it has a lot of history and the background of World War II. Uh, there is an actual Army unit that was uh, situated in Oklahoma City uh, that forms the backdrop uh, for this story. And uh, it's a very interesting book. I was really kind of surprised. I, I hadn't, hadn't connected the blood flag with the historical element of it. How important is that to you to kind of weave some of that type of historical perspective into, into your novels? I like to have, uh, not in every book, but occasionally I like to have a, uh, an actual event and then build from there, uh, particularly if it's an event that has some kind of wide appeal or knowledge uh, in the general public so that Although this one didn't, I mean, not, not many people knew of the existence of the blood flag. Um, I stumbled across it. I didn't know about it myself until 
two or three years ago. But um, in any event, I, I generally, uh, I'll oftentimes try to look for something that actually occurred. I'm a news junkie, and so I read, I read several news sources each day. And um, I'll pick through the threads of those news stories looking for a what-if scenario that you can, that you can uh, uh, expand upon in a fictional fashion. So you build in fictional characters around the event, and then you, you take the events as far as you possibly can push them and keep them real. Um, toward a toward an ultimate conclusion, and uh, with a lot of twists and turns, this one has some very wicked twists in it uh, that readers, I guarantee you, will not see coming. Well, we we won't give anything away other than no. I'm about halfway through the book, and and it's been uh, it's been a wild ride. I wish it's been it's taken me away from other th- <laughs> <laughs> other things. Uh, when you have a character, a main main protagonist like this, in in reoccurring uh, regular series of of books, is it is it become more more difficult? To write the next one, or is it just so much kind of interwoven part of your fabric that it just kind of it creatively just kind of flows out? Not always. Sometimes it's very difficult. There are stories that I have that I've been striving to write for years, but I can't quite mold them into a Madriani story with these characters for some reason. Uh, that occasionally happens. Not a lot, but every once in a while you'll come up with a with a story that just doesn't lend itself to that, and then I'll. Occasionally, I'll write a book outside the series in order to incorporate that story. But um, by and large, most of the most of the Madriani uh, uh, stories have basically come from the seeds of a legal trial. In other words, that's the backdrop. Uh, he's a defense attorney. He has a partner by the name of Harry Hines. He has an investigator by the name of Herman Herman Diggs. And these are the three principal characters that wind their way through each of the books. And um, and then they're uh, oftentimes they're whodunits. Uh, basically, you don't know you know what happened, but you don't know who's responsible. Um, and occasionally, you don't you don't even know precisely what happened until the very end. But um, that's the payoff for the reader. Oftentimes, mixed in with a little humor, uh, Harry's uh, the partner, the older partner of Paul Madriani, is uh, somewhat of a curmudgeonly character. He's um, he's a contrarian. He'll argue with you over anything. And if, if, if you tell him it's daylight out, he'll say it's night. And um, but uh, he's a, he's the he's the foil basically for Paul. And um, uh, and then there's a female character, uh, Jocelyn Cole, who's come into the uh, into the stories very recently, actually within the last three books. And uh, she's uh, Paul's love interest and uh, also a lawyer. Um, so it's uh, you've got the same retinue of characters. So it's like coming back to read about old friends each time you open one of these books. Once you get hooked on them, you and they can be read in any order. You don't have to necessarily pick them up with the first book and read through. Each one is a standalone novel, and uh, can be read uh, in its entirety from beginning to end. Yeah, vastness of authors that, that that have a have a legal background as uh, as well like like you do. How much does real life kind of infuse itself into into your novels? The early books, a great deal of it, because uh, the, the trial procedural stories, which I wrote in the, in the very early going, uh, were had to be accurate. I mean, you had to have the law correct. You had to have the procedure correct. Otherwise, you'd get a million letters or emails from lawyers. Um, but um, the characters themselves are composite characters. Uh, probably people I rub shoulders with or interviewed. I was a journalist before I was a lawyer. And so I interviewed, I covered the courts and I covered the legal process, and I interviewed a lot of judges and lawyers. And so a lot of my characters basically come from that uh, milieu in terms of, of, um, of people I have met over the course of my lifetime. And, uh, but you'll, you'll, you carve the edges on them a little bit, you shave them, you make them a little, 
a little less rough in some cases than they might be otherwise. Uh, sometimes they're a little more, and um, but uh, they are they are very much composite characters. There are no real real characters that I've that I've uh, met. You don't you don't take real people and put them in a novel basically and just want to get sued for slander, so are liable. And um, so uh, yeah, they are, they are very much fictional fictitious characters, but uh, you want to make them as true to life as you possibly can so that the story becomes believable. Uh, most of the stories that I've written are probably character driven. They're driven by the by the characters that roam the pages, and oftentimes they'll run away with a story on you if you aren't careful. What is it creatively that that drives the the process for you? And oh, that'd be a great idea for a story, or maybe nah, that wouldn't work so well. What what is it for you that 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 really? That's an works? interesting question. Um, I think for me, I guess it's it's it's. Uh, I'll look at like I say, I'm a news junkie, and I will read a lot of sources of information, and I'll often think that could in fact the story, the book just before. Uh, this one, the enemy inside, basically was driven by the um, tax scandals. The IRS was investigating people with offshore accounts who were trying to hide funds from the tax collector in places like Europe and Latin America and Asia, with numbered accounts. And uh, I took that that scenario and I ran with it, and 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 basically sort of played the what-if game. What if this happened? What if that happened? You take it to the outer edge. Well, I did all of this, and I published the novel, and then about a year after the novel was published, the Panama Papers broke, and all the things that I wrote about in the <laughs> novel basically were spread out there in front of me. I was astounded as, as, as much as anyone else was, uh, but uh, the fact that there were so many political figures in Europe and elsewhere who had numbered accounts and who had gotten caught okay, uh, trying to hide funds. And they were the very people who were beating the drums and going after, you know, the average taxpayer or the, uh, let's say, upper-end taxpayer who had a numbered account offshore uh, trying to hide their money. Well, these were the people who were somewhat hypocritical because they were doing it themselves and then pointing the finger at others and using government to pursue them. So it's the reason why I think a lot of people are have have uh, become disenchanted with government and uh, and so willing, basically, to uh, to look at uh, people who are are have a new twist on on what government should be uh, in terms of candidacies. But you know, yeah, Steve, the, the, this genre that, that you and and several of your other colleagues that that, that write in this genre it, it seems just universally popular. What is it about about this type of story? Do you think that's so appealing? The courtroom itself is a theater, and I think that's part of it. And the drama plays out. There oftentimes are not surprises because the rules of, of procedure, of, of judicial procedure, and of discovery basically prevent a lot of things from being surprises in a courtroom. But if you go back to the televised trials that we've seen, the notorious ones, uh, O.J. Simpson, for example, you know when they put the gloves on and the gloves didn't fit, you know, um, for whatever reason they didn't fit, whether they shrunk or what, who knows, you know, um, it uh, that was high theater, no question about it. And I think that. Um, the general public likes to look at the courtroom as the ultimate source of justice, okay? And it's not really, okay? It's a manipulated source of justice. It's justice, but there's rules of evidence and there's other procedural rules that govern what you can and cannot do there. And so sometimes you don't get pure justice in that setting. So it's, um, you know, people are always looking to smooth the edges at the end of a trial and come up with something that is ultimate, ultimate uh, justice. And such a thing doesn't exist. And I basically, that's been one of the themes that has run through these books um, from the beginning, and that is that the, that ultimate justice generally doesn't come from a courtroom verdict. Um, you get a you get an assemblance of it, but it's not it's not uh, fundamental uh, and absolute true justice uh, per se. 
Yeah. But uh, and I think I think the readers gravitate to that. You know, they if you've ever been on a trial you know, on a trial jury, you you know, you sit there and, and wait. There's a lot of boredom, you know, punctuated by by periods of high drama. That's Steve Martini. His latest book is Blood Flag, a Paul Madriani novel. It's available from HarperCollins. In the Author's Voice is a regular web series of WSIU Radio, a listener-supported service of Southern Illinois University. I'm Jeff Williams.